Well, we can um, turn back to the passage we read there uh, from Luke chapter 23 and just think about what is stated in these verses. Uh, Last night, um, those of us who are here, we thought about how Jesus arrived at Calvary at about um, nine o'clock. And I suppose what we thought about yesterday, last night, was the morning at Calvary. Uh, Just now, I would like us to think about the afternoon at Calvary. As we can see here in verse 44, sixth hour, that's midday, noon, and there's darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. in the afternoon. I suppose we would would have to say it was an incredible afternoon. If we were even just to compare it, just to think of what we did this afternoon. And whatever it was that we did, um, no doubt it had its own significance and things like that, but how much was compressed into it. But we can certainly see that a great deal happened on this afternoon at Calvary. There are, we thought of how we visited there last night in the morning and we saw some things. Tourists go there, don't they? In a literal sense, see what happened, or see where it happened, sorry. And in a spiritual sense, that's what we're doing, except we're not tourists. We are uh, visiting and we're thinking about what took place. So what um, did take place in these, these verses? Well, there's a very unusual darkness, isn't there? How often has it been dark at midday? Well, I can't answer that question really, but as far as numbers are concerned, but there was an unusual darkness here. So I'd like us to think about that. What does that signify? And then there's um, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Um, it's all happening around about three o'clock. What's the significance of that at three o'clock? And then there's, at the same time, there is what's known as the seventh saying of Jesus on the cross. uh, When he died, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And that's followed uh, immediately at three o'clock by the response of the centurion when he says, certainly this man was innocent. And 
also at three o'clock, people started going home. And they go home in a certain manner, beating their breasts. And also at three o'clock, all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee, they're standing watching these things. I suppose one effect of all this is that perhaps three o'clock should have a certain effect on our minds. Because here we have several things that happened on this particular day at three o'clock. Luke, of course, is only one of uh, four gospel writers, and each of the gospel writers highlight different aspects of what happened at Calvary. Luke has already um, described the events of the morning and the way he described them. There's his report, we want to put it that way, is based around the first two sayings of Jesus on the cross. The first one was when he prayed for the soldiers, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And then the second matter that Luke tells us about the morning is that um, the penitent uh, criminal asked to be remembered when Jesus came into his kingdom and Jesus said to him, his second saying on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. After that, Jesus mentions five, Jesus says five things, but Luke misses out four of them. And we might um, be puzzled by that because some of them are, well, all of them are of um, great significance, but Luke doesn't mention them. Luke doesn't mention, for example, that Jesus took care of his mother at the cross when he arranged for John to look after her. That's the third saying. And then the fourth saying where um, he, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke doesn't mention that. And then when Jesus says, after the darkness has risen, I thirst. Luke doesn't mention it. And then when, after that, Jesus cries, cries in triumph, it is finished. Luke doesn't mention it. But he does mention the seventh one. Uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, Luke was aware of the 
before he misses out. But he's guided by God. For us, when we're looking at his passage, to think of something else. So I'd just like us to follow what Luke highlights and just see what we can say about them. So first, there's this unusual darkness. Darkness at noonday, which lasts for about three hours until the ninth hour. What was the darkness? Well, some people wonder, was it an eclipse? But it wasn't an eclipse. Because Passover time was the time of the full moon. And you can't have an eclipse, a solar eclipse, when there's a full moon. You only have a solar eclipse when it's a new moon. So this particular darkness is not caused by an eclipse. And anyway, a solar eclipse only lasts for a few minutes. This darkness lasted for three hours. So it's not explained by that. Another question that comes up is how far was the darkness? The word that's translated land can also mean earth. Was this darkness limited to Judea? Or did it go further? How could you describe the land at that particular time? What land does he mean? In the land of Israel doesn't exist at this particular time. It's divided into a variety of Roman provinces. So what does he mean that there was darkness over the whole land? Or was there darkness everywhere? If there was darkness everywhere, it wouldn't all happen at the same time. Because the world's in different time zones. But there are records in Roman historians of a strange darkness. Unexplainable. This darkness probably is a special darkness. One that cannot be explained by uh, science or even by trying to look for sandstorms or other suggestions that are made. God sent it. Wonder why He sent it. What reasons would God have for sending this darkness? Well, a couple of suggestions, but one might be 
to hide the agony of the Savior. It's not nice to look on a suffering person. And the intensity of their suffering can make their physical appearance worse. What kind of suffering was Jesus going through when the darkness came? Isaiah tells us, doesn't he, that his physical shape was something that words can't almost describe. And part of the the torture of his body came from what was happening inside. He was bearing sin, paying the penalty for sin. And God hid it. There are no eyewitness accounts of what Jesus looked like on the cross. And sometimes perhaps we try and imagine it. But why should we? Because we can't imagine it. It's been hidden. The darkness hid it. I suppose there's a message there, isn't there? Don't speculate. Here we have in this darkness a literal application of what Amos says in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9 and 10. In Amos... Chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, God is using graphic language to describe what life would be like if he was to judge. This is what he says. And on that day, declares the Lord God, the day when I act in judgment, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. When Amos announced that, he was using picture language to describe what life would be like if God were to judge. But here at Calvary, in a literal sense, the sun went down at noon and the earth was darkened in broad daylight. God was at work 
And I suppose, as we look at it, imagine if it had happened today. How would we react it if there had been darkness at noontime? I suspect we would have been shocked, would have been startled, might even have been petrified. It's easy for us to read about verse 44 and darkness over the whole land because we've never seen it at noonday. But just think about being there when this happened. It would be shock and seriousness. And as we think about Calvary, surely that's what should mark us. Calvary is a shocking place. Do you think it's shocking? What God the Father did to his son? Is it startling? Surprising? Petrifying? If he would do that to his son, what else might he do? So it was unusual darkness. And then at three o'clock, when the darkness ceases, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Mark tells us it was torn in two from top to bottom, which of course is a way of saying it wasn't torn apart by humans. It was torn apart by an invisible power. And of course, the invisible power that tore it apart is the same one who sent the darkness. God tore it apart. What was happening at the temple at three in the afternoon? Because the crowds would be gathered there. At three in the afternoon was the time of the evening sacrifice. It was held every day. And people would come there because they regarded that sacrifice as totally essential. If that sacrifice wasn't offered every day, what would God do? Well, what did God do on this particular day at the time of the evening sacrifice? He tore the curtain open. Now, the the daily sacrifice uh, didn't involve the curtain, really, because the curtain, as we probably know, was between the holy place and the holy of holies. 
and the Holy of Holies was only used once a year. And the, the date for that was not the date when Jesus died. So the tearing of the curtain really doesn't have anything to do with the sacrifices that are taking place. Except for the people who are there for the evening sacrifice. And all of a sudden, what they had never seen inside the Holy of Holies becomes totally visible. Why had God done that? Why did that happen at the same time as Jesus died? What was God saying? Or if you want to put it another way, what was God showing at that particular moment? Well, I suppose more than one suggestion can be made about that. But the Holy of Holies, of course, was a picture of God's presence in heaven. And is God saying at the moment that Jesus died, not that people would have grasped it at that moment, but as we look back at it, my son died, and where did he go? Well, he went to heaven, didn't he? He had said that to the penitent thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. <clears throat> By that he meant heaven. And the Holy of Holies is a picture of God's inner presence. And there it is, wide open for everybody to see. And I don't think it's too far-fetched as we read that and look into heaven that's what it's inviting us to do, isn't it? Look in and use our minds and say, who's just gone there? And of course, the answer to that question is Jesus. He's now entered the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. And because he's done that, there's consequences. And, of course, the consequences are don't need sacrifices anymore. And access to God is now available to everyone. If they come in the way that Jesus mapped out for them. So this temple curtain being torn in two it's a very powerful voice it tells us that a man has arrived in the holy of holies he's arrived there on his own merits and it speaks very powerfully Or at least Jesus was about to go there. So, 
the tearing of the curtain and the unusual darkness. But then thirdly, there's what Jesus said as he died. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, whatever else this verse tells us, it tells us that Jesus was strong when he died. He called out with a loud voice. We're not told how far his voice extended, but it was loud. And of course, Luke says at the start of his gospel that he's researched all the information that he's got, he's got it from research. And this particular item of information, that it was with a loud voice, that comes from a witness. Whoever that witness happened to be, that's what they remembered, that the crucified Savior cried with a loud voice. So strength was there as he suffered. And of course, he's seen this after he has been through the agony. Strength has been given him to call out in this very graphic manner with a loud voice. It's interesting Again, he quotes from the Bible. Because into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a quote from Psalm 31, verses 4 and 5. In Psalm 31, the psalmist is wanting divine help. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And Jesus, as he did with everything, and we find this one very hard to grasp, but Jesus did everything according to the Bible. And even when he comes to die, that's how he dies. He dies with God's word on his lips because God's word's in his heart. And he faces his, his own passing by thinking of the scriptures. And what can we say about this particular saying of Jesus as he cries with his loud voice. Well, lots of things have been said about this, but just mentioned two or three of them, but one is, it's an example of how to die, isn't it?
if Jesus had been the only one to use this verse, we would have said, well, he was special, and therefore he had a special way. But although he's quoting a verse from the Word of God, He is quoting a verse that was originally written by a sinner, isn't he? The man that wrote Psalm 31 was a sinner. And here's Jesus. It's God's word, God's infallible word. God's inspired word. But originally, this statement is the heart longing of a sinner. A sinner who is wanting God's help. And whatever he was, the psalmist said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus, he uses it as he faces the last enemy. It's not just Jesus that uses it, of course, or the psalmist. Because Stephen, when he comes to die, he uses it as well. So if it was just Jesus that used it, as I said a minute ago, we might say, well, that's just a special way for him. But we discover that an Old Testament believer uses it and a New Testament believer uses it. So therefore it must be an example of how to die. To have our faith like this. Of course, Jesus says something different from both the psalmist and even from Stephen. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For him, it was something relational that he had with his heavenly father. In the Old Testament uses is the Lord, same person, of course. But Jesus had come to tell us about the Father. And here he is, how to die. I think it's morbid to think about that. But it's not really. Stephen says, Lord. So it's good to meditate on this. Think also of the authority of Jesus. 
No one takes his life from him. He said that himself, doesn't he? There in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's not surprising then, since he he understands there in John chapter 10, the Father loves him because he's going to lay down his life. And the Father has given him this charge to do it, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It's not too surprising then that with that authority, he just says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is not a a cry um, of despair. It's a cry of authority. No wonder it's with a loud voice. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then as we, I suppose we're meant to ask, why use that verse? The Father's hands. What does the Father's hands remind us of? Well, surely it's a reminder of his rule. That his hands govern everything. That he, he, he has got a plan. And that the entire future, we might say, is in the Father's hands. And Jesus, as he comes to the end of this stage of his, of his activities, and as he looks ahead to all the other stages that are going to be his experience in the ages to come afterwards, where else would he commit himself but into the one who controls all these stages? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's putting himself. It's almost a kind of dedication, an expression of his willingness to be involved in everything that the Father's hands do in the future. Jesus doesn't regard his, the end of his life here as the end of his activities. It's almost an expression of his devotion to doing the Father's will. And he's going to do that forever and ever. And here he is, 
as he leaves the place of his greatest triumph, the cross. He's dedicating himself to do what the Father's hands will guide him to do in the endless future that's ahead. It's a really extraordinary statement. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's the darkness, and there's the curtain, and there's the saying on the cross, and then there's the response of the centurion. Nobody expected the darkness. Nobody expected the curtain to be torn. Nobody expected Psalm 31 to be quoted and nobody expected the centurion to speak or at least to speak in the way he did and it is important to note I think how he spoke and who is he speaking to When he says, certainly this man was innocent, who's he speaking to? He's not speaking to the people around him. Luke tells us that this centurion praised God. That his words were an expression of his heart, uttered to the Most High. Do we expect, would we expect praise at Calvary? I mean, if we had literally been there and we had seen the the Savior suffer and all the other things that went on there. And if we did expect praise to be there, who do we expect to say it? And it's quite extraordinary that the man that says it is the Roman centurion. And of course, Mark tells us he also said something else. What he said in Mark was that surely this was the Son of God. So this centurion confesses as he looks at the suffering Christ and he And he has been standing there since he was the one that was in charge of the crucifixion. And he's been standing there all these hours. And at the end of it, he bursts out in this extraordinary statement of praise and affirms that the one who has just died is both God and man. Where did he get this information from? How did it happen to him? What does he mean when he says, certainly this man was innocent? Innocent of what? Does he just mean he's innocent of the charge that was above his head? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Or is he saying, 
wherever this man has been, he's been innocent. And he's got no doubt about it, does he? Certainly, this man was innocent. Why does he say it? Why does he say this after the seventh saying? Because it's an answer to the first saying, isn't it? As the centurion had reached the cross with his party of four soldiers or five soldiers, I mean, there were, and as they were nailed Jesus to the cross, Jesus prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Are we surprised that the centurion praised God? Matthew tells us, if I remember correctly, that the whole group of them did it. Why should we find that surprising when we think about the power of the intercession of Christ? And there, with no human explanation, and we may try and come up with reasons as to why he said this and so on. But when it comes down to it, the only reason why he said it is because God enlightened him. And his enlightenment is incredibly precise. This man has never been to a Bible college. This man has never heard a sermon. This man has never spoken to a Christian. And yet, as he stands there, he understands that the one who has suffered there is both God and man. He just believes it. We have no idea what his IQ was. And we have no idea what his background was. But what we are told about him is that standing at Calvary, he discovered who God is. And at Calvary, he discovered that God had become a man. And at Calvary, he saw the one who was both God and man. You know, sometimes we wonder how people can be converted. That's a very important thing to think about. How can people be converted? I wonder what suggestions would be made for how to convert this centurion. 
God can do it. And God can do it in the way God does it. This man is utterly convinced that he has found the one who is God and man. You and I can't explain how it happened. We have no idea how it happened. All we know is that it did happen. And is that not extraordinarily comforting? This man's experience tells us, doesn't it, that there's no one that God cannot change. And it tells us that even in the most surprising places, God can have converts. And it tells us too, doesn't it, that no conversions are the same. But it also tells us too that the power of the intercession of Christ is incredible. There at Calvary, his intercession was answered. And every conversion that's ever happened since then has been for the same reason. His intercession. And we should be glad that he ever lives to make intercession. But an extraordinary profession, isn't it? Sometimes we walk along High Street, wonder how these people can be converted. And as I say, it's good to think about it. But we should never forget the power of the intercession of Christ. And as we gather here the Lord's Supper, that's what we have to remember. That's why those of us who are at the table will be at the table. The power of the intercession of Christ. This man had his day, the day for his conversion. We have had ours. And we should thank him for that. And then there's the distress of the crowds. Not every at Calvary was hostile. And not every at Calvary was um, like the centurion. Some of them there, and the way Luke describes it, it's very graphic. All the crowds, all the crowds 
that had assembled for this spectacle. Everybody that had turned up to see what would happen. When they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. I wonder how many houses in Jerusalem on the evening of this extraordinary day were full of distressed people. All the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. It may just have been a sorrow of sympathy, who can say? It may only have been temporary, who can say? But surely it does tell us that when people go to Calvary, they're affected. Those that had turned up for the spectacle went home distressed. Who knows what happened to these people? We aren't told. But it is intriguing that the the man who researched very carefully and who asked all the relevant questions that the evidence he accumulated informed him that all the crowds who had gathered for the occasion went home beating their breasts. It's just a suggestion. But maybe Luke met some of them and told them that was how they reacted. But it was certainly an unusual experience for them to return from a crucifixion in great distress. And then lastly, there's his contacts, Jesus' contacts. There in verse 49, all his acquaintances, we know the disciples are not there. They've kind of run away. But there in verse 49, all his acquaintances I assume that means his family. Because they'd have been down for the Passover, wouldn't they? Every Jew went to Jerusalem for the Passover. So all the acquaintances of Jesus and the woman who had followed him from Galilee, there they are, standing at the cross, watching what's happening. 
whoever is among the acquaintances, we do know that shortly afterwards his brothers had become his followers and that he had made a special appearance to James and so on. But it is interesting, isn't it, that all his acquaintances were there. It doesn't just say his, his acquaintances, but all his acquaintances. And the woman who had followed him from Galilee. And of course, they had a marvelous study in themselves, their loyalty their determination to be with him, even though they don't believe anything's going to happen. Their faith has been kind of crushed. It's been destroyed almost in a sense. Their, their literal expectation of what he was going to do, it's been, it's been hammered. And I suppose we can say about them that a distressing experience has crushed their vision. But one thing it hasn't crushed is their love. And there they are at the cross watching these things. So, after our afternoon at Calvary, what have we seen? We've seen unexplainable darkness. We've seen a curtain that was meant to be closed wide open. We've heard someone quote a psalm as he leaves the world, expecting to be used by his father throughout the ages to come. We have seen a centurion start praising God with an amazing grasp of who the one who has died is, both God and man. We have seen crowds heading home, beating their breasts. And we have seen all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him watching. Calvary is the most extraordinary place. It's a place of mystery, of wonder. It's a place where salvation was procured. It's a place which shows us the power of Jesus. It's a place that tells us that although he's the one who suffered, 
He's also the one who's got an incredible future. He's the one who deserves all our dedication, all our lives. There's no one like him. He's totally unique. His life was unique. His death was unique. His whole history is unique. And his history never comes to an end. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that Calvary contains so many things. Some things we think we understand to some extent, and for that we give you thanks. There's other things about it all we can do as we pay our visit is stand in awe and just say to ourselves and say to one another that was incredible and then we go somewhere else and that was incredible and before we leave it we all conclude that everything about it is incredible. So help us, Lord, to rejoice in the triumph of Jesus for the one who died is going to be with us in a special way at the table. And we just pray that you would bless us there for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm.